only source of true delight whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Romans 14, 13 through 21. If you so desire, you may follow these lines, the very word of God, on page 949 of the Blue Pew Bible sitting in front of you. Romans 14, 13 through 21. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray. Lord God, we ask for your mercy to be upon us as we come to your word, that we will understand this word, that it will lay hold of our hearts, our emotions, our will, our very lives, and that we will live out the lordship of Christ before each other and toward each other, that we will walk in the love that Christ himself walked in. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen. Now we are uh, we're interesting as sinners because we find a way to do anything wrong, you know, no matter what the circumstance, no matter where, because we'll find ourselves not professing Christ boldly when we should profess Christ boldly. Jewish people would construct things. They bring it to the middle and come back out again. And that middle, you should look at it as the peak of the mountain. Okay, And so they kind of goes to that peak and comes away from that peak. But that's the centerpiece of the real essence of why we do what we do. So first of all, we're going to look at the strong uh, and, and what he tells the strong and the position of the strong. And then we'll look briefly at the weak and what their danger is. 
And then we'll look at what are the motives he brings to bear upon the strong for their love that they should show to the weak. So something about the strong's position and and then something about the weak's position and danger. And then we go to these motives uh, for why the strong should treat the the weak with respect and love. And hopefully we'll find in that uh, these things strong motives for our dealing with each other and loving each other. Even though our circumstances will not be very similar. In fact, I think you'll find this a bit foreign because these people are coming from a particular perspective of Jewish background that created this problem. And it's very hard to find exactly the same thing uh, in our circumstance. But the basic attitude toward one another, the basic motive, uh, these are the things that we must live out uh, in our present situation. And it's pretty obvious from the strong that uh, he, he doesn't call them the strong until chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong. And notice he includes himself with the strong. And the strong's position is that because of Christ, what Christ has accomplished, what Christ is, what Christ taught, this is all involved in when he says, I know, verse 14, and am persuaded. It's a strikingly emphatic way to say this. I'm absolutely convinced in the Lord Jesus, in all of my union with Him, in all that He represents, in all that He taught, in all that He accomplished, I'm absolutely certain that all foods are clean. Okay, That's the strong position. That's the position of more vigorous faith. Believing in the finished work of Christ, believing in the accomplishment of Christ, that no longer are those days and rituals of food and drink, do they apply anymore in our situation. He even says in verse 22, when he's talking about how you guard your the way you deal in a public way with your the weak brother. He says the faith that you have, that is this conviction that you have to eat anything, have it between yourself and God. In other words, when you're in private, it's fine to do whatever you want. I'm not talking about governing that. In fact, he says you're blessed if you can eat in, without your conscience bothering you. This is a blessed thing of God that you've come to a place where you're not worried about foods anymore. You're not worried about this or that day anymore. This is a blessed, happy position. So you see, for Paul, he says, this is where we want to be. This is, this is where you want these weak believers to be. He never says that the weak believer's position is one of blessing. He never commends the weak believer for believing the right thing. This is going to be all the more remarkable that the strong is going to have to give regard to the weak because Paul says clearly the weak are not believing in in the way they should the gospel. They're not believing and they don't have a full rich faith to believe that they can eat all things. And you might think, well, tough on them then, you know, who cares about them? Forget them. And of course, he's going to say, yeah, you don't want God saying that to you, do you? You know, forget you. Um, so it's all the more remarkable that this Pharisee, who of all people might be holding on to these matters of food and drink that were part of the Jewish 
a thinking. And especially, as we said last week, when they're mixing it up with the Gentiles, for the Jews, these, these were critical things for them to maintain their separation, to maintain their distance from the Gentiles. Because that was equivalent with maintaining your distance from all the Gentile immorality. It was viewed as one and the same thing. And so this is a huge different way to think that these things no longer are part of our relationship to God. So that's the strong faith. And... uh, Verses 22 and following, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. You're blessed if you can eat with a good conscience. But on the other hand, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. He is not eating in dependence upon God. Now let's get to that part. Let's talk some then about Uh, the problem with the weak. He obviously, though the situation is that you're doing the right thing before God, that is, you're having the right view of foods before God, nonetheless, you must never, verse 14, uh, put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. It's interesting how he puts this because he says, let us not pass judgment, but rather decide. That word decide is the same word as judge. So basically that's this. Don't judge one another, but judge your own thinking on this. Judge your own actions on this. Judge what you're doing to your brother. That's good. That's what we always need to be thinking about, Right. Not so much my rights and not judging another, but judging what I'm doing. And he, again, see, he repeats in verse 14, I know I'm persuaded that nothing is unclean, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. And here's the point. When this new, young, weak believer thinks that in eating this meat, we'll say, that he thinks has not been ritually prepared like it should be, when he eats this meat and thinks it's wrong to eat it, it is wrong for him, even if his view is wrong. You get the point? Paul says it's not really wrong to eat the meat. The strong are right and you're blessed if you can eat it with a good conscience. But if when you do this, you think you're doing something wrong, then it is wrong for you. That's how important conscience is to Paul. That's how important conscience is to God. That's why he says, if you don't, if it's not done from faith, it is sin. And the idea is for the strong to create a kind of fellowship around those who eat and those who drink wine, for instance. And they create a pressure on the weak believer that he should do this. You're not going to be really included with us unless you do this. Or there's a sense of superiority that they inflict upon the weak believer. Oh, oh, you still can't eat. Okay, that kind of attitude. Scorn upon him. Sense of, boy, we're the ones who've really arrived and you haven't which causes him to be put in a pressure situation. Maybe he begins to eat only to conform, only to be a part. But in his mind, he thinks he's doing something wrong. You have to bear in mind, coming from the Jewish side of things, if you ate in this way, 
if you disobey God in these rituals, then you would see yourself as a covenant breaker and cast out of the covenant, cast out of the people of God. And so this is what would be going through their minds, having lived this way and not getting to the point yet of seeing and believing in the new freedom they had in Christ. They would see, still see these things as absolutely flying in the face of God as covenant breakers. But then under the pressure of the fellowship, giving into it, maybe not even saying it to anybody, but just quietly acting like, I'm free now, I'm free now, and they're really not. And they're disobeying their conscience at every point. They really know, they think they're disobeying God and they don't care. They keep disobeying God. They give in to it. They decide that belonging and fitting in is more important than obeying God. That being a part of these people and being thought of as one of them, that's more important than than obeying God. And that's why he can use such devastating language that this could destroy them. This could, if they keep living this way in disobedience to their conscience, think what the end result of that could be. And he speaks in these bold kind of final terms. He said, realize what sin does to people. Realize what those kinds of pressures can ultimately do. Realize how the body could be divided by this and how hurt and alienated this could create uh, how, how much hurt and alienation this could create within the body, and so this is what he's telling the strong to avoid at all costs because of what it could do to the weak. So I want to explore that a little more as the first motive: realize the destructive nature of what you could do to the life of this weak person. He actually uses in verse 20 this phrase, in, in, in fact, in verse 16, it's uh, verse 15, the same one. Do not destroy the one, verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. And it's interesting, the emphasis in verse 20 is for the sake of food, don't destroy the work of God. The emphasis is on for something so small, you're going to destroy the work of God. And the work of God here probably not only means the work of God in this believer's life, but it means the work of God in the church as a whole. Because you really can't separate what goes on in one person's life with the whole of the body of, uh, of, of Christ, the whole of the church. And so here you are bent on you're going to eat what you want to eat and having that sense of superiority and, and you don't care, and, and you're going to destroy the very work of God. And the idea of destroy is the demolition, to tear down. It's the opposite of what he says in verse 19, mutual upbuilding. And those two words are contrasted many times. Like when Jesus is talking about the temple, he says, this, here's this building, this upbuilding, but everything's going to be torn down one day. And, and Paul uses these two words to contrast So the idea is, if you're not going to be building up one another, you're going to be tearing down one another. And don't, for the sake of food, be tearing down these weak believers, and then in doing so, tearing down the church itself, so that even, uh, you know, that people could actually be lost in in this case. He says, uh, do not... 
do this because you would not be walking in love. It says in verse 15, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, it doesn't just mean that he's saddened by what you eat, but it means if he involves himself in breaking his own conscience and turning away from God in this process, uh, it's the ultimate grief and agony. Uh, the word grief is, is, is a strong word here. You're no longer walking in love. He's been talking about love for several chapters. Back in chapter 12, verse 9, let love be genuine. And in that passage, he says, pursue peace with everyone in verse 18. In chapter 13, he says, owe no one anything, verse 8, except to love each other. If you love one another, you fulfill the law. He says, this is not love. This is not love. When food becomes more important than your brother. And he says in verse, uh, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. And this not only means what you regard as good, that is your liberty, but it probably, where is this liberty rooted in? The, the liberty is rooted in the gospel. The reason we have this freedom is that we have Christ and the gospel proclaims Christ. And so really, he's talking about that the gospel itself will be blasphemed. The gospel and all that it stands for and the freedom that it brings us into, it ultimately creates division in the church that not only is... Uh, that hurts people within, but people even without can, can see it. So this is your gospel. So this is the good news you're proclaiming. It frees you to hurt your own brother and to disregard his needs. Is that what the gospel is? The gospel sets you free so that now you can hurt your brother. Oh, some gospel. That y'all are now hurting one another and, and disagreeing on these issues and all because you won't give up your ham sandwich. No. Like, what? You couldn't stop eating your ham sandwich? And you would ruin a brother's life because of that? For food, you're going to destroy the work of, the, of, of God? So, these small things that, for any of us, can become giant things. That sense of... It could be the color of one of the Sunday school rooms, you know. And imagine that two people just can't decide on the right color and then they get mad at each other for the way they're talking about the color and the way they treat each other about the color and the superior sense she has about the color. And they split over that, you know. She sits over here and he sits over there. Why? Because of the color in the room in there. That's why they're doing that. What about righteousness and peace and joy? No, that's not so important as the color of that room, you know. Now, this is a different issue, but those are the kinds of things, you see, where very minor things become huge to us. Now, so, so here in the first place, we must think the destruction of a life and the destruction of the church is at, at risk here. And if it means that, and, and probably they're talking about in the main the public feasts and the love feasts that the church came together. Uh, likely every Lord's Day, they came together and they ate together. And it's at this point where they're saying, back off. Don't do anything at that point that's going to hurt your brother. 
and make him feel like when he's there, he can't really participate in the true fellowship that you guys have. And he's pushed to, tr- to do something that would hurt his conscience. So that's why we, the, the title is about self-control, of reeling it in, of denying myself something that I might enjoy, even something that is right for me to do in and of itself. Which brings us to our, our second point that, uh, and I'm taking this from the matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's not a matter of eating and drinking the kingdom, he says. It's a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Um, it's this sense of superiority, and you can almost hear how it could come across to say, look, Jesus has bought my liberty. He paid for my liberty with his blood. And I don't want to deny the liberty that Jesus bought me. I'm going to eat what he's let, he has bought for me to eat. You know, and feeling so righteous about that. You know, that this is the right thing for me to do. I will not go back to those rituals. I will not compromise. Even use the word compromise. Thinking that I would compromise if I don't eat this. And... uh there, there's this idea that it becomes so important. I love what, how Bruner uh, termed it. He says, it's devout carelessness. <laughs> devout carelessness. So devoted, so given up to Christ that you just can't stop doing this thing that's destroying your brother. No, that's not what the kingdom of God is about, about whether you eat or drink, and that becomes the central issue that you get to eat or drink in your new freedom. Like Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Your freedom now is primarily to serve to serve, to live righteously, to do the right thing to one another, and to live in peace, to live in true harmony and mutual submission. Counting one another is more important than yourself. That's the backbone of living in peace and harmony. That we follow the Lord Jesus, who did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he poured himself out and became a servant, even to the point of dying on a cross. And joy. We don't think of joy many times as horizontal. We think of it mainly, and it is, of course, in its root, a joy in the Lord. But if you look up joy in your uh, concordance in the New Testament, it's usually surrounded by fellowship and relationship to one another. That's what the joy is about. Certainly, it is rejoicing in the Lord, and the root of it is in the Lord. But it just flows out and fills up one another and even is perfected. Uh, Many times, Paul will say, uh, I I long to see you, Timothy, that I may be filled with joy. Or they'll talk about being perfected in joy, that my joy will be complete if I can be with you. Or even to say to the Thessalonians, who is our hope or joy or crown before our Lord Jesus? It's you. You're our glory and joy. And you almost think, you're, that's idolatry, you know. You're calling people your joy and your glory. So the joy that we have together 
before the throne of God, the joy that we have in mutually, humbly giving ourselves to Him and knowing that forgiveness and then embracing one another as brothers and sisters in Christ and serving one another and kind of fumbling over each other to, to do for one another. That's the joy and peace and righteousness of the kingdom. Food and drink, not a big deal. If you have to give it up on occasion, which he's talking about, if when you are with them on those rare occasions or, or even frequent, but not all during the week, well, they, give it up because that's not what the kingdom is about. The kingdom is this rich involvement in one another's life and this rich fellowship with God that pours itself out in one another's lives. <clears throat> and this has a wider appeal. If you thus serve Christ in this way, verse 18, you not only are acceptable to God, but approved by men. And that's the indicator that those within and without the church will be more and more drawn to the way you live. What happens in this place that people give themselves up for one another in this place? They truly love each other in this place. They, they, they give up things for one another. It's very interesting <clears throat> that... Jesus, in Matthew 23, calls the Pharisees to task because the Pharisees were so given to ritual, right, that Jesus says, you neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But now he's saying to the strong, if you, in the opposite direction, so value your freedom from ritual you could then be neglecting joy and peace and righteousness as well. You see, either you're a ritual keeper to the exclusion of the real issues or you're not a ritual keeper to the exclusion of the real issues, which are how we love one another. So you can make an idol out of rituals. You can make an idol out of no rituals. And I'm going to no ritual. I don't care what. <laughs> Even if it destroys my brother. And finally, we have the motivation of the destruction of the brother. We have the motivation of the true heart of the kingdom. And we have the motivation of Christ's lordship. Notice in verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ. And this is against the backdrop of the very thing we say Sunday after Sunday at this time, uh, our declaration from Romans 14 that none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. It's his lordship. Whoever thus serves Christ, and, and of course he means there, serves Christ as Lord in this. And, and that's really the meaning of the kingdom of God. This is the rule of God in our lives. The rule of God through the Holy Spirit, the rule of God that through, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is, we, we profess His Lordship, we admire His Lordship, we follow Him, we want to manifest Him. We're all about Christ and His Lordship, who He is. And so it's a matter of submitting to Him, it's a matter of saying, we will obey you, we will follow you. And in chapter 15, verse 1, when he says, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak 
and not to please ourselves, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. Our Lord, the one we serve, the one we follow, you're going to follow him where? You're going to follow him in servanthood or you don't follow him at all. He didn't please himself by dying on the cross. That wasn't a pleasant, fun thing, a vacation, you know, a nice warm meal at candlelight. It was horrible. That's the point he's making. He wasn't pleasing himself. He was doing something that was devastatingly terrible for the sake of others that he might please and benefit them. And will you not give up your ham sandwich, your your Chardonnay? Come on. After what Christ did? And you see, this Lord sacrificed himself. That's the point. That That's the emphasis, the strength of verse 16. Are you going to destroy the one for whom Christ died? Like Christ died for him, manifested his love for him, sacrificed for him, but you can't sacrifice food for him. And you say that you submit to this Lord who doesn't please him. Not getting it here. Not getting the connection. And so, we have the great privilege of loving each other as Christ has loved us. That's an amazing privilege. It's an amazing thing to which we've been called. And as I said at the beginning of worship, it's not just a bare calling, hey, go and do this. You've been called by the mighty power of God into this benefit, into this Ability, this new strength to love as Christ loved. I love how Paul puts this transfer in Colossians 1 when he says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's where we were, living for ourselves, pleasing ourselves, doing jolly well whatever we want to, right? He delivered us from the domain of darkness and He's transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And that's where we are. We are in the kingdom. We belong to this kingdom. The Holy Spirit brings these things about in us. This righteousness, peace, and joy. It is a sovereign salvation of God. A sovereign workmanship of God. That He is going to create a bunch of little Christs in this place. That look like Jesus. That love like Jesus. That sacrifice like Jesus. That give away their privileges like Jesus, because this was a new privilege, even a religious privilege won by Christ to now not have to worry about food. But if it comes to loving your brother or sister, it becomes a matter that you just gladly give up because that's what the kingdom is about. That's what you're about. Doing the right thing, living in peace and humility, living in joyful love for one another. Now, if... If um, you maybe don't know Christ, maybe you've never come to the point of realizing the extent of your sin against God and realizing that there is no hope for me to enter into the presence of this God. There is no hope for me to have a relationship with this God except that this God would show mercy to me. I was like that. Many of us were like that, thinking that 
I've got to do enough good things to get to this God. And here's the great paradox, the, the wonderful paradox. It's because we come to this point of realizing the extent of my lack of love to people, for instance, in my life, and my lack of trust in God, my lack of honoring Him and loving Him and praising Him every hour of my life. And seeing all of this together and then seeing that I have really nothing to bring to Him, to commend myself to Him, and God coming to me and saying, I will accomplish your salvation through my Son. I give my son to die in your place. I give my son to bear your sins. I give my son to live a righteous life on your behalf. I give my son to die and be raised from the dead so that you can one day have life forever and your body can be renewed and you can have the new heavens and the new earth. I do all of this for you and it's a gift. And it's in the welcome of that Gift. It's in the humility and brokenness and yet amazed happiness in receiving the love of God in Christ and forgiveness that happens immediately and forgiveness that you can enjoy every day of your life. It's in that little centerpiece that you begin to have a new freedom and rest. Just give yourself away to others and to love others as you haven't loved them before. So what we're talking about here has a beginning place a beginning place of tasting the mercy of God in Christ. It's sustained by enjoying that same mercy, by always depending on that same forgiveness. And so I commend to you the Lord Jesus Christ and the great work of God of being a part of this kingdom so that you can show forth the love of Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we ask you to bless us We ask you to constantly equip us by your Holy Spirit, thanking you that it is none other than the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God who moved upon the waters in creation, Spirit that was the very agent to form this universe. That Spirit is now at work in us to create these wonderful things, this this righteousness, this peace, this joy, to create it in us as a fellowship, in us as a church. We come to you, Lord, afresh, depending upon you and expecting you to bring about this kind of happy, sacrificial love and and so manifest the great reign of God in our lives as a body. May it shine the brightest light in the darkness, for we ask it in Jesus' name. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Of night and chase my fears away. 
Won't you chase my fears away? 